It's good to be in the house of God with you all today. Uh, Even though Ben is not here, I would like to just express my gratitude for him, uh, his friendship, his love for God, his love for God's people, God's word. He truly has the heart of a shepherd, and I'm very grateful to God for that. I'd also like to thank Ben and the elders for allowing me the privilege to open God's word with you today. Trust that God will speak to us through his word, by his spirit, and I pray that his son would be exalted. We'll be in Psalm 127, so I invite you to open your Bibles there. As you're finding that, does anyone remember how Ben uh, summarized Psalm 126 last week with one word? Does anybody remember that word? Joy. So Psalm 127 can be summarized as dependence. What is dependence? What comes to your mind when you think about dependence? To what degree are you dependent on others? And more personally, to what degree are you dependent on God? I think the psalm is answering this question. Uh, I do think one-word summaries are a little bit dangerous when you're dealing with passage, so another way to summarize this is with this phrase, Nisi Dominus Frustra. This is actually taken from the Latin Vulgate, the, the Latin Bible, from this very passage, this is how historically people have kind of summarized Psalm 127. And if you look at those symbols, uh, they are representing what Edinburgh, Scotland has called their motto for hundreds of years, dating all the way back to 1647. The more colorful is uh, called the coat of arms. It's, it's an actual government document that has this on it to this day. Uh, the one that is architectural is on the city chambers as you enter. Actually, it's up on top of the building as well. So I wonder if your life was marked by a phrase, what would it be? Nisi Dominus Frustra is, if not God, in vain, or without God, frustration. Frustration comes from the Latin word frustra. Thus, without God, frustration. When you get to the end of your life, what will be the motto of your life, the epitaph. How will people remember you? So I also think Nisi Dominus Frustra only captures one side of the coin. I think there's more to it than that. 
This is something to remember, to kind of hang our hats on when we think about this psalm. But before we get into it more, I invite you to pray with me. Father, I pray that you would come and move by your spirit, that you would awaken faith in our hearts, that we would come to you in childlike dependence, and that we would see you for who you are. Guide us now by your spirit to the honor of your name and the exaltation of your son. In his name I pray, amen. Psalm 127, follow along as I read. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So Nisi Dominus Frustra, without God, frustration is helpful for part of the psalm, but how could we summarize the entire psalm? Here's how I would attempt to do that. Solomon is saying that it is possible to build, protect, and work in such a way that all our efforts are empty and worthless. Without God, no matter how much we think we are doing, it is nothing more than frustrating effort. However, he contrasts that kind of effort with the kind of restful dependence that God gives, even when the days might be long or the work hard. He points us to God as the decisive, loving builder who guides our lives even down to the details of children. I believe that's what this psalm is about. So with that in view, I see three pictures in this psalm that Solomon is drawing under the inspiration of the Spirit for our hearts to rejoice in, that's what we should do with this truth. The first picture is the vain, futile, worthless, inconsequential way of living or encapsulated in self-dependent living. So when I use the term three pictures, think of it kind of like we think of pausing a show and it's right in the middle of the action, and you get a glimpse of what this episode is about. Uh, maybe even better is Instagram or Facebook. When you post a picture and you have a caption describing what's happening, I think that's what 
this poetry here is doing. It's painting a picture and it's saying, this is what a vain, futile, worthless, inconsequential way of living looks like. So look with me again at the first two verses. There's a phrase that should capture our attention because it's repeated. And that phrase is in vain, in vain, in vain. You should hear it loud and clear. The contrast is evident because there's a conditional statement. He's saying, if not the Lord, and we are left asking, then what? So since Solomon wrote this, we might think of another book that Solomon wrote where he talks about vanity, and that's in Ecclesiastes. Solomon in Ecclesiastes is talking about the quality of vanity. In Psalm 127, Solomon is talking about the manner, the habit, it's a way of living. So in Ecclesiastes 1.14, he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. He's talking about what characterizes vanity. This is very helpful, I think, in understanding the psalm, but it's different. Its very nature is like vapor, and striving after the wind is like eating that vapor. That's exactly what Hosea says about God's people who had gone astray in Hosea 12.1. He says of them, they were feeding on the wind. So that's the nature of vanity. But here in Psalm 127, there's a distinction. Here in vain is manner, not quality. So it's illustrating a way of living. In other words, there is a way to build and watch and labor that is totally devoid of reliance on the Lord. We see this phrase actually in the first, for the first time in Exodus 20, verse 7, in the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, unfortunately, many of us totally misunderstand what that is about. As did the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people took that to mean we don't speak God's name. We often assume something similar. We don't use God's name as a curse word. That's right and good. But this is talking about a manner of living. A life totally devoid of dependence on God. We could encapsulate that in something like this. Lord, Lord, did we not build churches in your name? And he will say, it is in vain. 
Did we not build hospitals in your name? And he will say, it is in vain. Or create cures for cancer in your name. And he will say, in vain. Maybe even advocating for the unborn in the name of God. In vain. Totally devoid of reliance on God. It is possible to create something good. That's what this is. Building is creating. To stand against injustice. And even to work hard in such a way that God is not valued, esteemed, honored, or relied upon. It is possible to take his name in vain with a self-righteous pride and no regard for God. That was certainly true of the people who Solomon was writing to, even Solomon himself, a builder. To what end? A protector of the city of David? To what end? Perhaps some of us are guilty of this kind of self-dependent working for God as if he is deficient in some way and feeling frustrated that he isn't blessing us. Thinking that he somehow owes me something. If I do this, then God should do that. That's not how it works. That's not reliance on God. So we should see the futility of our efforts in trying to build good things in the name of God for the wrong reason. There's another way that we can see this, though, by taking the name of the Lord in vain. Just 11 chapters into the Bible, we get a picture of this. It's atheistic in nature. It didn't go long, it didn't take long to go from chapter 5, where every intention of humanity was evil, living with no regard for God, ignoring and rejecting Him, to God destroying the whole earth with a flood, yet mercifully keeping Noah and his family. And then we see Noah's descendants starting over again, going right back to the rejection of God by building a city and a tower in vain. The Tower of Babel. There might be some of you here today that are not guilty of doing things in God's name with false motives, but you're living with total disregard for God, just like the repeating theme of the Old Testament, of history. God builds something 
beautiful. God builds something good. And we think it's deficient. We think we can build better. We think we're more capable. And we don't think that we need some Lord building. But who gives you breath? Why are you so weak that you have to sleep a third of your life? If you can accomplish so much on your own, why are you anxious? So many in our culture today, and maybe someone in here, reduces life to something merely material and physical. As if we're just, as the song says, dust in the wind. That is foolishness. You are not only material. You are created as a moral being, and this is what we're getting at here. It's what motivates you. It's what you worship. It's what you value. And if you are living this way, you know what you ought to do, but you despise it. You know your guilt, but you disregard it. You know frustration very well. Now, I'm going to assume that most of us are not blatant, atheists, agnostic, materialists. But we are functional atheists. Look again at verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Verse 1 is describing the manner of living. Verse 2 is explaining the manner of living. Solomon describes that as eating the bread of anxious toil. It's anxious working. It's anxious rising up early and going late to rest. This person is the one who is sustained, as it were, by eating anxiety. Sort of like eating the wind. As Solomon pointed out in Ecclesiastes. Solomon says in Proverbs, Bread gained by, the sweet, by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Anxiety is a deceptive dessert that we spend countless hours eating by building, watching, and working but later we find our mouths are full of gravel. It's deceptive bread when we work grueling hours to complete, to climb the corporate ladder. It's deceptive bread when you think you can keep your children safe 
from all the dangers of the world. Or you may frantically try to please everyone and never say no. The reason it's deceptive bread is because you are putting yourself in the place of God. Thinking that he is either unable or doesn't care about your work or the way you work. Why would God care about how I live? This is what I love about this psalm. God cares about the details of our lives. And this book that we have, this word from God that we have, is not about us. It is about him. It's painting a picture of reality. It's painting a picture of a world that is totally dependent on him. Are you living out this reality? Or are you living in anxiety? God calls us to humble ourselves and hand our cares over to him because he does care. So not only does this anxious toiling leave gravel in your mouth, but it results in never actually building anything worthwhile at all. It steals your joy in building, and it steals your reward of building. But listen, there is better bread. Hear the invitation of the Lord to you today. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For those who trust this Savior, your working is never in vain. Rather, it is full of joy because you know that he is your greatest treasure in all work carried out in reliance on him is working to bring you into greater delight in the one whose yoke is easy and burden light. So to summarize the first two verses of the psalm, I believe Solomon is saying that it's possible to build, protect, and work in such a way which we are calling a manner of living with with empty and worthless effort. And without God, no matter how much good we think we are doing, it's nothing more than frustrating effort. So that's picture number one, the vain, futile, worthless, inconsequential way of living. I'm going to hang your hat on Nisi Dominus Frustra. It encapsulates, without God, frustration. But there's another side of the coin And the other side of the coin is restful dependence that God gives, even when the days might be long or the work hard. God is the decisive, loving builder who guides our lives even down to the details of children 
So picture number two, God-dependent living. Look again with me at this first verse, and let's put it in a positive statement. When the Lord builds the house, then those who build it do not labor in vain. When the Lord watches over the city, then the watchman does not stay awake in vain. Doesn't this look so much better? What a better picture. Instead of a worthless, inconsequential, futile, and vain way, this is drastically different. In this picture, the Lord is infinitely strong and sufficient and able to build and watch in such a way that is superior to anything we can do. In fact, even while we sleep, he's lovingly working for those who wait for him. Hear me. He is far stronger and more loving than we imagine him to be. And we are far weaker and dependent than we imagine ourselves to be. Think of the last few years with COVID. And that will tell you something of how frail we are. So, we have a phrase that I want to clarify. I'm not going to assume everyone understands what the Lord means. Solomon says, when the Lord builds the house, who is this Lord? Well, this Lord comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's actually the most common name for God in the Old Testament. It's used thousands of times to speak of the personal name of God of the Israelites. In a Hallmark text, which you can turn to, is Exodus 3, 12 through 15. Here we see God meets Moses at the burning bush and calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Listen to the conversation. God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What this text is telling us about the nature of God and helping to illuminate for us in Psalm 127 is the Lord is the I am. In verse 14 of Exodus 3, it says, I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. The Lord has sent me to you. You see, I am is synonymous with the Lord. But what does I am imply? It implies God is self-existent. 
and therefore depends on nothing for his existence. He's the creator and therefore stands outside of creation. All things are creaturely, and he is creator. It also means that he is immutable, so his character and being never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal. He stands outside of time. One of the words that theologians like to use that should cause anyone <laughs> with the breath of God in them to rejoice is the word aseity. It means from oneself. And I would recommend, if you've never heard of this word, to study it and understand this will change the way you worship the Lord. God exists in himself, from himself, without anything else. But yet the point of Exodus, and I think it's the point of Psalm 127, is that God is promising this God, this self-existent one, is promising to be with Moses as he promises to be with us as we build and watch and work. He is the one who is. He is what he will be and he alone causes to be what is. He's the only being who is complete in himself. And yet this Lord is building and watching with us. He's promising to personally be involved. But he is the decisive builder. Now, this carries implications in creation that I think is important to highlight here. He didn't create the world because he was lonely or because he needed a companion of some kind. We worship a triune God. God in, in, in and of himself is eternal, is immutable, is self-existent, and he is loving. And he is gracious. And because of that, he made us. As Romans says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Do you see the Lord this way? Our church motto actually speaks about this. We exist to glorify God. And that means that we recognize that he is the giver. We are simply the recipients. He is the great supplier. We are needy. We get the help, and he gets the glory as the one who freely gives from himself. That's who we're talking about here, this Lord who's building. So that's who's building, but what is he building? What is he building and what is he protecting? If we go back to Genesis chapter 11, 
there's a stark contrast. Genesis 3 through 11 is this picture, like I said, of God creating something, God calling people to protect what he has created. But yet, they live in vain. And at the end of chapter 11, we're introduced to a man named Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls him. And it's interesting because of the covenant with Abraham, I think it actually illuminates that in this text, this building a house and protecting a city has layers of meaning. So we use this in our language. We talk about going to someone's house. We talk about coming to God's house. And we mean two things by that. We mean a physical place, but we mean a family. Well, the way that it's used throughout the Old Testament is the same way. But it primarily, I believe, is saying God is building a family, a people. God's covenant with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David are exemplifying what God is building, a people. So when we talk about God building a house and protecting a city, I think the layered meaning is God is building a people. He is the decisive builder. And so we read that Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered the tools God was using to build the house, that is, his frail old body and his wife's barren womb. But he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God by relying on the Lord to build and protect what he promised. And what did he promise? Offspring. And because of that promise, we are here today. Look again briefly at the last part of verse 2. It says in the ESV, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Uh, the New English translation, I think, helps us understand this a little bit better. I, I think this phrase really helps us understand what's going on. So what I just said with the house being people, I think is helpful in explaining how the two parts of this psalm fit together. It seems like we look at this psalm and we say, yeah, God builds, God protects, this vanity stuff, yeah, okay, and then children are over here somewhere. It doesn't connect in our minds. But I think understanding the house as people makes a connection, and I think the last phrase makes a connection. Here's how the uh, New English translation translates this last phrase of verse 2. Yes, he provides for those whom he loves even when they sleep. The main point of the first two verses, as we've already said, is the manner or practice of dependence. It's a way of living. So it makes the most sense to show the manner of the way God gives. So I don't think it's about what he gives, which is what the ESV is saying. 
he gives to his beloved sleep. I think it's about how he gives. He gives even in his sleep, even while you're sleeping. So I said earlier that the Lord is infinitely strong and sufficient, and he is able to build and watch in such a way that is superior to anything we can do. In fact, even while we sleep, he's lovingly working for those who wait for him. It's not just giving us sleep, although that's a wonderful grace that he does give us, but it's how, even while we sleep. John Piper says this, sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. You are not God. You are not sovereign. You are not self-existent. You are dependent. He goes on to say, God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps. God is doing a thousand things for you, even while you sleep. But we need to pause here for a moment because there's a wonderful word here that I want us to think about. He addresses us. Beloved, you are not defined. Those of you who, who have turned and are turning from self-dependence and coming and childlike dependence to the Father, you are not defined primarily as worker or builder, watcher. You are defined as beloved. The builder of the universe and the watcher of the world this self-existent, immutable, of himself being, God, the Lord, loves you. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who calls the stars out by number, calling each one by name, by his great might and strong power, not one is missing. Why do you say, beloved, my way is hidden from the Lord? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the universe. He does not faint or grow tired. And to him, and to him without strength, he increases strength. Thus says the Lord who created you, who formed you, Beloved, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. God does not love you because you're impressive. God loves you because of himself. He is loving and he can do nothing but love you. He calls you by name and he loves you. 
God is calling you to himself. And he will provide strength for you. Even in your sleep. God accomplishes more in your sleep than you could possibly accomplish in all your waking hours apart from him. So, picture two is something like God is decisive. He is the decisive, loving builder who guides our lives even down to the details of children. And I think picture two is displaying the details. Have you ever considered, one of the reasons that I think this is true is because of what I just showed you with the New English translation. Parents, I think the last part of verse two is alluding to the fact, even while you sleep, Conception is happening. This is a picture of how God builds decisively and we build. God builds and God protects that precious child in the womb. How powerful are you to do that? Do you realize your dependence on God? Look with me at these last few verses. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Culture tells us children are a burden. Children are not a blessing because we are told every day that we are building something too significant for children. We have assets to protect and children get in the way. And maybe some of you here have gotten gypped with that foolish talk. God gives us children. They are a heritage, an inheritance from the Lord. They are a reward. He is involved personally in the details of our lives. There may be some of you in here who are wondering, how could he be involved in the details? I lost a child. How could he be involved? When my child walks away, God is the builder. God is the protector. They are like arrows 
in the hand of a warrior. The children of one's youth. Now this word warrior is very interesting to see how it's used in the Old Testament. Warrior uh, is used, the term is used in First Chronicles multiple times and it's talking about the leader of a family, the protector of a family, the head of the house is the term that's synonymous with this. We use this. Unfortunately, our culture has also tried to distort this reality. But a lot of theologians pick up on this term house and actually link it to the garden and link it to the temple. And the mandate from the very beginning for Adam and every man through the Bible and history is to do two things, to build and to protect. But we just keep failing. We keep doing it in vain, apart from God. And so in Chronicles, it actually mentions the Levites who are over the house of God as being the protectors and the builders. So the picture here of a warrior and arrows is a picture of men. It's actually interesting because it says the children of one's youth, but it's the sons. The sons are being raised up. This is a picture of how God builds the house, of how God protects the city through family, through a community of people like we have here in God's house. And then just a couple notes here. Happy is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The idea is a man is at the gate. The city gate is a place where justice is carried out. It's like a court. So he's standing at the gate, and his enemies have their sights on him, and he's got warriors behind him who are protecting him. Some of you may be in the later stages of life and you're enjoying the reward. God, in his providence, has designed that as you enjoy the gift of children, build them up, admonish them, discipline them, that one day they will support you. They will have your back as you stand at what Corinthians calls the last enemy, death. I think that this is eluding also 
this text should draw our minds to Hebrews. It's talking about Christ, the beloved son. He was treated shamefully. He was outside the gate, suffering, facing the last enemy for us. But he was faithful over God's house, unlike every other man before us, and we ourselves. We need a savior. And he is building a better house, a new humanity. Those who rely on him, who are united to him by faith, will one day enjoy eternal rest. Trust this Savior. Come to him. The great I am, the bread of life. You will never hunger or thirst. Let's pray. Father, we are absolutely insufficient for this task. By your grace, I pray that you would enable us to trust you, to rely on you, and to see children as the great blessing that they are. And may we look to Christ the true and better Adam and Moses and David. And may we find our rest in him. In his name I pray.